You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 1, 1-12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Let's be the God. Amen. Uh, we're going to pray. Um, Alan, is there any chance you could very diplomatically go ask the kids to not play basketball until the service is over? We do have a permit. That's the rattling noise that's going on outside. Uh, they're outside, though. You'll have to go outside. But let me pray. But be diplomatic and kind in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to get quite annoying. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, um, with, with many things on our mind, with many things on our hearts, with all kinds of things vying for our attention and calling for us to uh, trust and hope in them, we pray this morning, Father, as we look at your word, that our minds would be fixed on Christ, and that as we reflect on this passage from First Peter, you would help us to trust in Christ more diligently and be filled with more courage to be the people you've called us to be in the city. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, I guess I should introduce myself. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kyle Hackman. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church Toronto. We're glad that you joined us. I'm not just the bouncer that kicks out kids playing basketball from the front. Uh, in 2010, my wife Kim and I, uh, we received a letter it was a letter uh, that wasn't tremendously different from a letter others had received in my seminary at the same, same time. Uh, the letter was called a call letter. We might call it in the general secular world, we might call it a job offer. 
But this letter uh, wasn't like any ordinary letter or the ordinary call letter because it didn't just include information about a job that I was being offered at Grace Toronto Church down the street. Uh, it also included details as to um, if I took this job, what it would mean for my family as we immigrated to Canada. Kim, my wife, and at the time a two-month-old named Eden. Um, she's actually helping the kids now and is much older. Um, but in many ways, this letter seemed very ordinary to us, and it seemed like it wasn't a big deal. But we had no idea at the time as we read this letter and thought through this letter and agreed to the terms of this letter that it would very much change sort of who we would become as human beings. And, and in a way, it, would, it, was an, it was an invitation to take on some kind of new identity with ourselves. We would no longer just be uh, these sort of Americans who had graduated from seminary. Now, after some 13 years here in Canada, we're these Canadian-slash-American family uh, who's been somewhat transformed by moving into this new country. Uh, when I agreed to the letter, to, you know, when we signed our name at the bottom, I had no idea sort of what would become of me, the way it would change uh, the sports that I enjoyed watching, the way I'd be able to identify every Canadian in the NBA or the MLB, you know, the way in which I'd hear some guy's nasally voice, uh, you know, the tragically hip singing some song, and I would have fond memories of times up north. I had no idea how much this letter was going to transform sort of what, how I perceived and experienced life. And we had no idea as we agreed to come how much this was going to sort of change our identity. We'd be different people after experiencing this. We, we would never fully be the same people we were before, but in, in many ways, we would never really be fully the, the people that we were interacting with. It changed how we thought about our past, the way we were educated. It changed how we experienced the present and the thought processes we had as we, pro we processed what was going on in the present, and it changed how we thought about our future. Well, this morning we're beginning this sermon series in the book of 1 Peter, and the book of 1 Peter was written by, you know, if you had two guesses, I hope you'd get it right, uh, the Apostle Peter. And uh, he's a fond figure in the Bible. He's one who's prone to failure, one to putting his, prone to putting his foot in uh, his mouth. He was a Galilean fisherman, and if you think about it, probably very, very poorly educated, certainly less educated than everybody in this room. And yet, uh, here he becomes, in many ways, one of the first followers of Jesus, he becomes one of the apostles and really the pillar, one of the pillars upon which the church flourishes, the church that we now participate in mystically as a, a small body. This book was written to a group of Christians in modern-day Turkey. We get their, their locations very early in the book, and we get some hints that there's probably the majority of the people to whom Peter is writing are first-generation Christians, and they're experiencing some kind of persecution. Peter's likely writing from Rome during the reign of Nero, right before things were about to get really, really bad. And he very clearly gives the purpose of this book. If you want to know what First Peter's about, he says it in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, basically, stand firm in the true grace of God. And in, in many ways, this letter is going to begin with an invitation. And it's an invitation, it's a letter that's before you that in some ways is similar to the letter that Kim and I had received uh, it's an invitation to take on some kind of new identity, to, to be a part and to participate in, in something new. In the same way, I had a letter before me that was going to transform how I viewed sports and how I took, took on uh, reality in general. This letter is going to start, this opening uh, sentence is going to start with an invitation to explore a new identity that belongs to you. And after exploring that new identity, then Peter is going to teach us how we can grow in that new identity. This new identity Peter is going to call us to first is, is found in the first couple of verses, 
And then Peter's going to tell us to set our eyes on a particular future that belongs to us as participants in this new identity, to experience the present differently, and to reflect on the past in a new way. So here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to first look at this new identity, and then I want to look at the new future that belongs to us in light of the new identity, then the new way we'll experience the present, and a new way we can understand the past. Yes, it is a four-point sermon. Don't worry. I'll make sure that nothing goes wrong. Some of you don't think I could ever preach anything but a three-point sermon, and you've now been proved wrong. <laughs> so first, let's talk about this new identity that belongs to us. Where do we see this? We see this in the very beginning of the letter, where the Apostle Peter addresses his letter to the elect exiles who are in dispersion. Now, what could this mean? Now, it's possible when he thinks of exiles and dispersion that he's being quite literal. He's referring to people who maybe have been driven away from Jerusalem or maybe they've been driven away from Rome due to various types of persecution and they now live an exilic life. They're strangers in a foreign land because they had to flee. And while it is possible he's speaking to literal exiles, more than likely he's uh, speaking to people who actually live in these various provinces and regions, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern-day Turkey. More than likely, as we read the book, you're going to see that he presumes the audience to have some kind of Gentile heritage. They're not Jewish people, probably not from Jerusalem. And very likely, they're first-generation uh, first believers in Jesus. And he starts off by helping this church in Turkey, who's experiencing persecution, understand their identity by telling them, this is what your identity is. You are elect exiles in dispersion. Peter's telling the Christians in this region that the way they are to self-identify, the way they are to perceive themselves as it relates to where they are located in the world and how they process what it means to, to, to live in this portion of the world is that they are people who are away from home, disconnected from home. This may have been the very city that they grew up in, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by becoming part of the church, now these people have become displaced people. People who aren't quite home yet. There, there is some, something that has happened where they feel disconnected and displaced from the way in which they are currently experiencing reality. And this is a good, a good lesson for us to think about, especially here in Toronto, a great city to live in. You know, depending on what statistics you look at, one of the best cities to live in, one of the safest cities to live in. The Apostle Peter would want us to know and would want to identify us as people who also are displaced but by God's purposes, have been placed in the city of Toronto. This is no accident. You can look closely at what Peter says. He says, God the Father chose, and he foreknew. Each one of these people would be elect exiles in the region with which they were placed in, and the same, would, would, the same principle would apply to us. This was done by the setting apart of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit set people apart so that they could be displaced people, properly placed and these very cities and regions, and this is done for obedience to Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. The sprinkling with his blood is a longer story that I'd love to tell you more about. It's certainly a reference to Exodus 24, when God's people, the people of Israel, entered into a special relationship with God, a covenant, and that covenant was based on the blood of these bulls that were sacrificed, and the priests sprinkled this blood over the people as they took vows to be God's people, to be obedient to God wholeheartedly. The Apostle Peter saying, these elect exiles are now the people of God based not on the blood of bulls, but on the blood of Jesus, and their obedience to Jesus is rooted in that blood. 
Now, why is this important, this metaphor of displaced people that God has placed in their particular region? Why is this important? I feel like I talk about this a lot, and that's not going to stop me from talking about it again. Um, But the church in our time is really struggling to understand our identity, especially in the Western world, especially in North America, struggling to understand our identity as to how we interact and fit into the world at large. And there's various models with which many of us have grown up in that have, have proved to be unhelpful for us, that have been, that have been frustrating. Uh, some of us grew up in a model that could best be described as assimilation, where we're told the way to become a good Christian in Toronto, an elect exile in Toronto, a displaced person placed in Toronto, is by assimilating with the common culture. Whatever values of the culture, we embrace them with a Christian twist. We assimilate to the, the surrounding culture. And how has that worked out for us? We'll drive around, and we don't need to point fingers or say any names, but you'll see church after church, which took this assimilation approach, which have, by and large, just disappeared. People, there's, there's no distinguishing them from the wider city, and therefore people see no purpose in following after Jesus because they could continue with the ways of the city. And so this method of assimilation... Has, has forgotten the fact that we are displaced people. We are exiles. We're, we're, we feel as foreigners in the land with which we reside. As a response to that, some, in the tradition I grew up in, have chosen a model we might call fortification, which is, well, if we are elect exiles, but we want to preserve our culture of our homeland, we better come together and build high walls together set up for ourselves sort of separate institutions and separate ways to exist in the world so that we can preserve our distinctives to Christ. This is how we are going to be displaced people placed in Toronto. We're going to be that church, but we're going to set ourselves apart and distinguish ourselves building fortresses. And this model has proved to be unhelpful as well because in a sense it ends up making us so displaced from the world that we're in we, we, we lose the fact that God has chosen, has elected, has placed us where we are at this time. There's other, other models that some of you grew up in. We might call it the privatization model, which says, okay, assimilation isn't working. This fortification model really is, is not ideal. So maybe we, what we do is we just privatize our faith. We leave our personal beliefs inside of our hearts. We don't take them to our workplace. And Christianity be, becomes something that's simply internal, something that we wrestle through just in our hearts. And again, I think you're going to find, as we read the book of 1 Peter, Peter's going to say that is not the model that will provide flourishing. You always have to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. He expects you to see yourselves as displaced, but placed in the region with which you reside for a reason. The last model, which I think has been, by and large, been crushed in our generation, is this model we might call conquest, which is said, okay, assimilation, not good, because you lose your distinctives, you forget that you're exiles. Conquest, or, or sorry, uh, fortification not good because you forget to engage with the world in the area with which God has placed you. Privatization not good because you must engage with the world with which God has placed you. Maybe the way forward is conquest. Maybe what our Lord is calling us to is to be the people who dominate the cultural narrative, take over political institutions, control school curriculums. You know, this, you know where this is going. You know, come to a place where our views are the majority views, and then at that point we'll be faithful to our Lord. And there's a big temptation to do this. And there's reasons in Scripture to see that this is something of our calling. But it will never fully be our calling because the Apostle Peter wants us to understand our identity. We are displaced people. We are people who do not ever fully fit in 
to the area with which we reside. And that's the exact way God wants it. He wants us to be a people who don't fully understand, to, to feel like we are homesick. We don't, we don't fully belong here. And yet at the same time, who have a robust belief that our Lord not only coincidentally allowed us to be here, but He actually chose and by His Holy Spirit set us apart to be where we are. Displaced people who are properly placed. This is the identity that the Apostle Peter wants us to have. He wants us to to see ourselves this way, and I know that many of you feel this. You feel the tension of feeling somewhat at home in Toronto, and yet I talk to you, teachers, how in the world do I navigate some of these curriculums that I'm being asked to teach? How, How in the world? You feel displaced. I know I should be here. I know this is the calling our Lord has given to me, but I, my, our categories just don't fully overlap. Are people trying to work out issues in the legal system? How do we do this? How do we say Jesus is the one who's the greatest priority to me as I wrestle through the way our legal system has structured and encourages us to navigate conflict? This is the tension. Displaced people who have been placed. I, th- I hope you all know it. And if you don't know something of this pain, if you don't know something of this tension... Let me challenge you. Maybe, maybe this, this world as you see it now has become too much home for you. Maybe you haven't understood your identity as being displaced. And maybe for some of you, you feel this tension and your, resu- your, your, your response has been to pull away from general society, to just take advantage of all the good things in Toronto and just hide. Let me, let me remind you very clearly, you're not just displaced people, but you're placed here in Toronto by our Lord. This is how Peter wants the church in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, to understand their primary identity. I've already droned on a little longer than I should, but I hope in your mind you understand the tension. And I hope we understand as a church, if we're going to walk forward into this world, if we're going to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world that's asking all kinds of confusing questions, in a world in which paradigms are constantly shifting, new ways of thought are being promoted, and we're going to have to critically wrestle through these things, we are always going to feel displaced. Always. There's not one politician that's going to fix that. There's There's not one sort of solution that is going to make us not feel displaced. We'll always be somewhat homesick, but we must resist the urge to hide. We're displaced, but placed. This is our identity as followers of Jesus. This is our identity, Christ Church, as we think about what it means to be a church in this community. We're displaced, placed people. This is our new identity. The Apostle Peter tells us that if we want to grow, though, in this identity, there's some changes that must take place in our mind. Or there's, 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 we've got to understand what belongs to us. And he next tells us about a new future that is ours. We see this in verses 3 to 5. Let me reread them. The Apostle Peter, after giving a blessing to God, says this, that God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, what is Peter doing here? Peter's telling us something that we all deeply know. That what it means to be human, at its very core, human beings are inescapably shaped by our view of the future. It's, and I'm telling you, it's true. The, the reason why society feels like it's in somewhat of, of uh, a shaky situation right now, somewhat chaotic right now, is because people are questioning what we all previously held common as our hope for the future. Whether that was some sort of common vague religious hope, or maybe more than likely our hope was that democracy would fix everything. 
This was our hope that we, our, our, our nation, our country, would somehow uh, provide for us a better world. And this was our hope, which was worth sacrificing for and even at times dying for. And as that narrative is being shaken up, people don't know collectively what we all hope in, and that transforms what it means to be human. But the Apostle Peter is telling us that as these displaced people who are placed in Toronto, we have one common hope, and this is the salvation that is going to be revealed on the last day. And it's more than just some kind of rescue from the world. It includes this inheritance, which is non-spoilable or non-perishable. Maybe I could say it this way. The inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven is not subject to inflation. It's not like your retirement account, watching money disappear as you do nothing, as inflation deflates what currently belongs to you. There is an inheritance that won't be touched by these things, and it will not perish, and it will not fade. And as you walk through the halls of heaven, the aisles of heaven, there you see your inheritance. And if anyone goes to your inheritance and says, I would like that, our Lord says, I'm sorry, that one was reserved. That one is taken. She's living in Toronto right now, but this is hers, and it is as good as certain. Better than gold. Not only that, this future hope is our salvation, and our Lord is guarding us until that day, protecting us until that salvation is fully and finally revealed. Now, how does that salvation come to us? What is it rooted in, our future hope? Well, the Apostle Peter says it is rooted in our knowledge, our certainty that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. When I say the name Neil Armstrong, almost assuredly what comes to mind in everyone's mind is the first man on the moon. And what does that mean for us collectively as human beings? It means that Travel into space and even interacting with other planets is now a viable option. There's an, a new future ahead of us collectively because one man was the breakthrough pioneer who did what was previously unthinkable, and now all of us think about our future in light of space travel of some sort. Maybe not, we don't always think this way, but generally speaking, he was the breakthrough pioneer, and it transforms what it means to be human. And this is similar to what the Apostle Peter is saying. Jesus Christ lived this faithful life on earth. He died on the cross, a martyr's death, which he said was for the sins of many. It all looked like he was possibly psychotic. And then he resurrected from the dead. On the third day, the Lord raised his body up from the grave. And this was the beginning, the seed of new creation taking place, this promise of God to undo all that is wrong and unwind all that is damaged in our world. And to bring it not just uh, to this pure state, but to bring it to this state of glory. Where we, where we, we uh, as we just sung, that we, we will never sin. We will sin no more and we'll delight fully in what it means to be human. We will faithfully follow after our God and honor him with our lives and not second guess all of our motives. And this is our common future. It's a future that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. That as surely as Jesus broke through. And new creation broke into our world with a bang. So also, we will taste resurrection. Our bodies may decay. They may fall apart. They may eaten by be eaten by diseases. We may die in tragedy. But this is not the last story. We are a collective people who understand a new future. We are displaced, placed people who know where we're headed. New creation has already been birthed in the resurrection of Jesus. We will experience the new creation, and it will come to us like a glorious inheritance. An inheritance that can't be touched by inflation. An inheritance that's certainly waiting for us that we need not worry about. This is a living, not a dead, a living hope that animates our community. It allows us to make mistakes. 
If, if we had no hope, we would have no need to, we would have no willingness to make mistakes. We'd be paranoid that any mistake might bring about the end of all things. But because we have this hope, we'll, make great mis- we'll, we'll be willing to make great mistakes for the sake of possibly being a part of the advancement of God's kingdom. Listen, this is our new future, and let me just give you a test as to how you can understand whether or not you have understanding of this new future and whether this new future is animating your life the way it ought to be. I know for a fact that there are some people here in our church, and I'm often one of them, who find themselves caught up in cycles of cynicism and despair. At our best, we think, oh, this is terrible. At our worst, we think nothing really matters. Friends, we have a new future. The Lord, though we feel so homesick, so displaced, though we feel that we've been placed here and it, it encou- we, we were put in situations where we must encounter suffering, our Lord has set for us a glorious future. There is nothing painful that'll be done, that has been done to you that won't be undone, that won't become marks of your glory, marks of your greatness. This is our common hope. We will taste the resurrection. It doesn't matter what stands in front of us. This is certain. And if we, when we get our, caught in these cycles of cynicism and despair, when we begin to believe our faith is fake, when our hearts begin to become restless, it is at this time we must remember this common future, this new future, this living hope that is ours. As surely as Jesus rose from the dead, all will be made right. All will be fixed. One day we won't feel homesick. We'll feel right at home. It's just around the corner. This is our new future. It's not just that we are given a new future. If we're going to grow into our experience of our new identity, we have to also have a new experience of the present. Now, where do we see this? This is verses 6, really all the way till 9, but let me reread verse 6. The Apostle Peter writes, In this, that is your salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, what is our experience of the present that Peter's assuming the church in modern-day Turkey, and I would assume he assumes we in Toronto are experiencing? He assumes we will have various trials before us. There's going to be moments of pain, of difficulty, of frustration. We're displaced people. It's no surprise. If you've ever interacted with any refugee, they have much pain and trials ahead of them, even just to navigate getting a driver's license. So also with us as displaced people, there are many difficult and and tough and painful experiences ahead of us. The trials aren't fake. The trials aren't, um, we're not called to pretend like they're not real. They are sent and they will grieve us. And yet the Apostle Peter says, we are the type of people who will rejoice in the midst of the trials. Now this is inconceivable to our world. Our world only wants to lament and hate trials and rejoice when good things happen. So at the end of the day, we're willing to do great sacrifices, say exercise quite a bit and go through trials, and some of us you know, might get uh, attracted to this feeling. But at the end of the day, the real rejoicing comes from the conclusion, the result, when the trial is over and the good things we see about ourselves are, are, are made manifest. But these trials, according to the Apostle Peter, actually play for us an important role, and it's this role that causes us to rejoice. When we go through these trials, when there's strain on us, when we're tempted to compromise, and maybe we actually do, and we've got to figure out how to make right on our compromise, 
When we find ourselves butting heads with the ways of this world, frustrated as to how to move forward, when we find ourselves actively persecuted, told we can't do certain things, we can't say certain things, as we experience the pain of those trials, the reason we can rejoice is because the Apostle Peter is telling us that this will show forth the tested genuineness of our faith. As the hymn writer once wrote, O joy that seekest me through pain, Oh, joy that seeks me through pain. These trials and testing come upon us. And as the fire heats up, the gold is shown forth to be pure. As some of you know, in university, I worked at a really strange uh, car dealership. Pretty weird place. A lot of fun stories came out of there. Um, It was a BMW dealership. And one of my jobs was when people would go take test drives, especially on the very, very high-end cars, Uh, They would have to come to me, and I would have to make a copy of the test driver's driver's license, and I would give them the dealer plates so that they could go for a test drive. And there's always a moment of great fun for me when people were buying these super high-end cars, like the M-Series, these $100,000 car, to um, see the type of people who might have stumbled into millions of dollars, people, athletes, adrenaline junkies, uh, and to know that this person is going to go on a test drive with the salesperson, often who is an older person, who maybe uh, wasn't too thrilled to go on this particular test drive, and the salesperson who knew that a proper test drive of a $100,000 car includes opening this bad boy up, you know, (laughs) giving it what it's got, shifting too late, you know, feeling the power of this car. If someone's going to pay five, six times the price of an average car, they got to know that what they are buying is something greater, is something glorious, something more powerful. And I used to absolutely love watching one particular uh, salesperson a Greek guy who, uh, you know, had all his categories right in life, had a certain olive oil that he assured me was the only one that was worthy of eating. Uh, a very particular man. There's nothing I love more than making a photocopy of, uh, say, a, a football player's driver's license, knowing full and well that that guy was going to come back so frazzled. It just gave me so much joy to watch him get out of the car ready to vomit as though he had just got off some kind of, you know, circus ride. Now, <laughs> why do I share this? Look, you're not going to buy, you're not going to know this car has any value unless you push it a little bit, unless you see that this is, this is a glorious car. This is something greater than I thought. And the Apostle Peter is saying, it's the same kind of dynamic that's going to happen with your faith. You know, if you're driving it like it's a little Toyota Corolla all the time, that's fine. And Corolla faith will get you somewhere. But it's these trials that are going to say, look, this faith isn't ordinary. This isn't just some kind of abstract belief. This is, sorry to the Corolla drivers, I see a whispering to each other. We can lament later, uh, the, the, the Toyota drivers, but um, not BMW. Um, <laughs> this, this is why the Lord allows these trials to go place, so that you and I can see that there's something greater than a BMW faith inside, not, not these, uh, I, I don't even know what car to make fun of now, not these, these ordinary cars, you know, these vintage cars. Uh, there's, there's something grander inside of us, strengthened, strong inside of us, something special inside of us. And this gives us inexpressible joy. Why? Because we know this. We know that at any trial that we go through, any trial we go through, our faith is as fragile as, a, say, a Toyota, Toyota Corolla. Let's call it an 84 Corolla so that no one feels personally offended. If you have an 84 Corolla, I'm really sorry. We're trying to start a diaconate fund for you later. <laughs> um, you know, um, as we, go through these, as we go through these trials, we realize our faith really isn't altogether that strong, altogether that put together. We find ourselves despairing. We find ourselves filled with agony, frustration about the experience of the trials. And yet, as we persevere through it, what do we learn? Well, we can see it 
in verse 5. That we're sustained through faith. It's not our grit that holds us together. It's not our willpower where we try to build up a faith that includes all kinds of, of, of willpower, uh, BMW-like willpower. It's just a very simple and ordinary faith that sustains us. And at the end of the day, we realize it is God himself, the one who chose us, foreknew us, the one who has made us to be a displaced people placed here in Toronto. It is he who sustains us. And as we experience the Lord's sustaining power in the midst of deep trials, trials that I know some of you are going through right now, as we see the Lord sustain us, as we realize we didn't turn our back on the faith, that there was something deeper inside that caused us to stick with it and to hold on, we realized this, that we were holding on by faith to God, but as we realized that, we realized our faith was weak, and at the end of the day, it was our Lord holding on to us. And this is what brings about our rejoicing. This is why collectively in pain we can say, praise be to God. On my own, I could not stand. The Lord held me strong. Simple faith, feeble faith, in the midst of some of the darkest nights of your life. As you go through this, you find yourself rejoicing because the Lord has proved to be faithful. And this brings forth joy. I've been way too long. New identity, new future, new outlook on the present. And finally, the Apostle Peter is going to tell us that we, this is going to give us a new view of the past. We see this really uh, starting in verses 10 through 12. A new understanding of the past now belongs to us. Let me reread this. Concerning this salvation, the salvation we've experienced, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was, your, uh, was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. The Apostle Peter is telling us that if we want to grow in this new identity we have as this displaced, placed people, people who are Christ's people, we have to understand that all of history in the past was pointing to this great privileged moment where it would all be revealed. Jeremiah, talking about the new covenant. Isaiah, talking about the suffering servant. Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones. All these prophets of old, speaking God's words, thinking they have some grasp on what's going on, but not really certain about how these things will play out and how they will work out in God's word. They're saying, who is this? What is this this ultimately referring to? How does this work out? The apostle Peter is telling us that all of history that has come before was really pointing to this climactic moment where we would understand what this pattern of suffering before glory really was all about. Our Lord Jesus Christ, God's very Son, coming to this earth, taking on flesh, dying for us, resurrecting. All the prophets were trying to understand how this moment was going to take place. And even the angels in heaven, who I'm sure have similar computing power in their brains to us, but who just did not have categories, longed to understand how God was going to come and make right the wrongs, longed to see how he would enter in and participate in the suffering that he might bring about glory. This is how we view all that came before our Lord Jesus Christ. It was all pointing to this moment. And we, church, now can say something that the angels never have been able to say or to understand, that when we turn to Jesus with all our faults, fears, guilt, and failure, 
and cry out to him and ask him to forgive our sins, to be for us our Savior. When we taste that salvation, we experience something that no angel knew, that no angel has experienced, that all the saints who came before were anticipating and looking towards. What have I been trying to say this morning? In conclusion, I've been trying to say this. The Apostle Peter wants this church in modern-day Turkey, and by extension, I'm convinced us, to understand that no matter how hard we work, no matter how great our impact in the city of Toronto, we'll always feel like displaced people, but who are here because God placed us here for a mission. And this is our identity. And when we understand that identity, when we want to grow in it, we'll understand the future that we have, this common hope that in the resurrection all will be made right. This is going to allow us to suffer well in the present. It's going to cause us to look back in the past and all God's actions and realize all that was building up so that we might experience this salvation in Christ. This is what it means to be God's people. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, all the gener- times which we could have been born, places we could have been born, all the different uh, areas of the world we could have been born, you have placed us and sovereignly chose to put us here in Toronto at this moment. And you've allowed us even to sit under the preaching of your gospel, something angels would long to have experienced, something that prophets of old looked forward to and couldn't anticipate fully. We thank you for this new identity we have in Christ when we turn from our sins and trust in him. Father, if there's anyone in this room who does not know this new identity, what it means to find our home in Christ, I pray, Father, maybe even today for the first time, they would acknowledge that they are sinful, acknowledge their need for the work of Christ in their life, and acknowledge that they have a new hope in the resurrection. Make us into a church that embodies this well to our neighbors, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.